Now, as we dive into the word of the Lord this morning, I want to start off by having you think about how the average person, whether or not you're male or female, younger or older, but the average person, there's not much difference, speaks about 16,000 words per day, per day. I know that you may not feel like it and probably has decreased a little bit while we shelter in place, but on average, whether you realize or not, even those short 30-second, 50-second, one-minute conversations, you have about 25 conversations per day for the average person. In a year, that could fill up 33 books of 500 pages. And if you were to live 75 speaking years of life, you would be able to produce 438 million words in your lifetime. Picture it this way. If you were to write down every single one of those 438 million words, it would be as long as 402 copies of Proust's In Search of Lost Time, the longest novel that was ever written at 4,215 pages. 402 copies of that. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of words. And with those people we've sheltered in place with over these past 14 months, to all the people that we're going to have awkward in-person conversations uh, that we'll have as California and our atrophied social skills reboot over the next few months, I want you to be thinking about, well, what kind of impact does all my talk have on all the people who enter into my orbit? And why does that matter to God? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to James chapter 3. We're in this series called Vibrant. Uh, as we learn about a faith that works even when life doesn't. And we've talked about how there's a tendency in us to be nearsighted in our struggles in life, that we need a new lens <clears throat> to be able to see our circumstances and our lives uh, through heaven's eyes. And as we're temp uh, tested by troubles and temptations of life, that a vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom, which blooms into Christ-honoring uh, principles and perspectives and practices with our lives. And so today, our brother, Pastor James, the author of this book, focuses on how to live out God's wisdom, particularly with our tongue, the very tool that he uses to reve reveal much about ourselves and our relationships to other people. So let's pick up in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So let's stop right there, looking at those first two verses. In verse 1, James starts off with this very odd warning. You better think twice before becoming a teacher or a preacher of the word of God. So not just in the school teacher sense, but specifically when they use the word teacher in the Bible, they're talking about somebody who teaches and preaches the word of God. And the reason why is because with greater influence and responsibility for God in the body of Christ comes greater judgment and accountability from God for the body of Christ. Now, this seems kind of like a tangent, but it's actually introducing the topic that James wants to address, how your words matter. So if you are a pastor or a deacon, a 
Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a youth counselor or parent raising up your children to know the Lord. Those who teach God's word, there are serious consequences for what we say and how we say it, both in ministry and especially outside of ministry, because your words, your life, your example, they all matter and they're constantly teaching something to other people as a representative of Jesus and his word. But the warning is not just for them. You see, in verse 2, it says, we all stumble in many ways. In other words, we all blow it. We all lie or steal or lust. We're all sinful in our lifestyles. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you don't stumble in what you say, now I want you to see that. There's a contrast between having a sinful lifestyle, stumbling in a sinful lifestyle, and not stumbling in what you say. Then you would be perfect, James says. Now, I want you to understand what that word means. In the original language, it means to reach the end goal, to be finished, to be perfected in maturity. So the word there means not to be sinless, but to be mature. You get that? So how do we get there? Second half of verse 2, if you're able to hold your tongue in check, then you'll be able to keep your whole body, your whole being, your whole life in check. That is maturity in Christ. And we know that because James is writing to Christians this letter. It's not telling us how to be saved, but it's telling those who are already saved how we should be living in Christ. So it's not about performing the right way and making sure that you speak the right way in order to be to get into heaven, but how we need to be living if you already have salvation through your faith in Christ. And so the big idea this morning in this passage is that growth in self-control over our speech is the mark of spiritual maturity in Christ. That your tongue is to your spiritual life the same as an x-ray is to the human body. That our words reveal what's going on inside of us. What is the spiritual direction and expression of our inner life? And what is the impact it will have on ourselves and on all the people around us? You remember way back in James chapter 1, verse 26, he talks to us about how if we think we are living out our faith, but we don't put a leash on our tongue, then we deceive ourselves and our religion, the outward actions of giving and service and worship, they're worthless. And so a person's words are the thermometer that accurately take the temperature of a person's character. It reveals to us how our relationship with God really is right now. So let me start off by asking you this morning. If you were to be judged by what comes out of your mouth, how would the people in your life rate your spiritual maturity on a scale of 1 to 10? How about the last person that you hurt with your words? How would they rate your spiritual life? I want you to be thinking about that, but I know when we think about it, it's easy to rationalize, well, yes, but... My tongue is just a small part of who I am. Why would it speak more about me than how much I pray or how much I give or how much I serve? And here's why James considers it an important diagnostic tool. Let's pick up in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So let's stop right there. James wants us to understand the power of the tongue, why it's so important uh, through these three illustrations. So in verse three, he wants us to picture a 2,000 pound horse. That's the average size of a riding horse. It's massive. And yet, you and I could climb on it. Or even if you go to horse races, a 95 pound jockey could climb onto it and tell it exactly what to do. Make it go left, make it go right, go forwards, go backwards. How? Because of a strategic little bar that you stick in its mouth that's only about five inches long, about this size, to direct a 2,000 pound, a one ton horse. Now, I want you to notice in this verse that James says the horse isn't obeying the bit. That's just the tool. James says it obeys us. We guide their bodies. In other words, a horse is steered by the bit, but it's controlled by the rider. Second example, verse 4. Back then, uh, the word there is for a big cargo vessel, not a little uh, fishing boat, but with a large cargo vessel is propelled forward by mighty winds uh, it caught in its, in its sails. But the direction of the ship is not at the whim of the wind and the waves. Instead, it's at the whim of a thin piece of rudder, which is controlled by what, James says? The pilot. So with such a large ship, it's steered by the rudder, but it's controlled by the pilot. So in the same way, verse 5, James says that the tongue is also small. It's only this two-ounce slab of muscle and nerves. And yet, it says big things, and it has great impact. What comes out of our mouth wields enormous power and influence to steer what kind of person we're going to become, our character, where we're headed in life, our direction, and what kind of impact we have on other people, influence. So I want you to remember that, that the tongue steers our character, our direction, and our influence. So think of it this way. Imagine that a family has been trapped at home and they're trying to cope with sheltering in place over this past year. Uh, The husband maybe has uh, had to pick up new work and facing new challenges and stressed out a lot. And his wife is concerned and says to him, you know, even though you're working from home, yet it seems like you hardly see us or care about us anymore. And you remember all the times you've shared with me how your absent dad really hurt you and really hurt your family. I'm scared because it seems like you're becoming like him. Now, that husband has a choice. They could respond in one of two ways. I'm so sorry, honey. I've been under a lot of stress. I know that you're right. I know that you care about me. And you're right. I have a lot of emotional baggage from the past about my dad. And yet, he's the only pattern of what a dad looks like or a husband looks like that I grew up with for 30 plus years. And so I'm starting to become a lot like him and making the same mistakes as he does. So what can I do to make things better? It's one response. Or with his words, he could lash out. You have no idea how much pressure I'm under. 
with this new job, with all the challenges of sheltering in place. And it feels like I, I got a new life. You'd hardly recognize me. And I'm so glad because how can a person like me care for you? Hurtful and sinful words. So who's in control of his tongue at that moment? Who's steering his life at that moment? Exhaustion, physically, fear and frustration, emotionally, baggage of the past with his father or circumstances of the present with the new situation, but not Jesus. And now it's easy for us to think, well, I have my tongue under control. I just zip my lip when I, when I start to get frustrated. But I want you to think about it this way in terms of this passage. <clears throat> you don't fix an unruly horse by keeping it in the barn. Nor do you have a ship that sells crooked. You don't fix that by keeping it at the dock. That's just ignoring the problem. So remember that words are the fruit, but James points us to the root. Who or what is holding the reins or the rudder of your tongue? Is it Jesus or someone or something else that's steering your words in your life? Now, it'd be easy to respond to this passage. Well, you know what, Brother James, you're just overreacting. Those, they're just words. I'm not like, it's not like I'm killing somebody. And then James warns us. Second half of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of of reptile and sea creature can be uh, tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Let's stop right there. You may remember on Saturday, September the 5th, 2020, just last year, uh, that an expectant couple set off some fireworks at a park to release colored smoke for their gender reveal party of their impending baby. This was about 70 miles east of LA. Unfortunately, it ignited a small brush fire. And if you remember, because it was such a dry season, the entire area was like a tinderbox. And so it spread quickly and out of control. Eventually, this small fire ended up burning 22,000 acres, forcing hundreds of people to flee from businesses and homes and killing one firefighter. You see, in California, we know how devastating wildfires can be and how it just takes a spark. Verse 5 and 6. Like a tiny flame can ignite a raging inferno, the tongue has incredible power. And the problem is, We're more likely than not to use this powerful tool in a harmful way. We're quick to belittle or battle or burn people instead of bless people. Why do we do that? Verse 6, James says, The tongue contains a world of unrighteousness. All the unrighteousness in the world, all the sinfulness in the world can be expressed through the tongue. And And that it stains our whole body instead of, keeping us unstained from the world like we're instructed to do in chapter 1, verse 27. And so, let's put it this way. Left unchecked, 
The tongue can bring out the absolute worst in us. It accelerates us down a path, a pattern, a direction of life where we burn up our relations and our reputation. We burn up ourselves and everyone around us. Well, I can control my tongue. Can you really? In verse 7, it says that God imbues mankind with great authority over all of creation, dominion over every living creature that he has made. But no man can tame the tongue. Why? Because in verse 8, the tongue is restless and it's poisonous. So the picture there is like a lethal, venomous snake. And if you don't deal with the wickedness in your heart, you can throw a rug over this serpent, but you're just covering it up for a little while. And what happens is the picture there is of this restless snake writhing just below the surface, just waiting for the opportunity when you're feeling tired or angry or hungry or lonely. It's waiting for that opportunity to erupt and strike any time at any one. So I think you get the point that we need to recognize and beware the destructive power of our sinful words. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so you know that old adage that you probably learned when you were a kid. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we know that that's patently untrue because bones, they can heal in a few months. But the wound from words can stick to us for a lifetime. You ask anyone around you, what was the most painful thing that was ever said to you when you were a kid? Or in general, what's the most painful thing that's been ever said to you? And what I find is that people can recall exact words just like that. I'll never forget how these kids at school humiliated me for my appearance. I'll never forget how a parent berated me for my performance. I'll never forget how my spouse rejected me for my failure. I think all of us can remember words that stick with us, that when you think about them, they still sting, they still affect how we feel, what we think, the decisions we make, and often for a lifetime. So let me ask you, are your words death-dealing or life-giving to people? When was the last time that you burned someone by unleashing contempt or criticism or cruel words, intentionally or not? And I want you to see in the Bible, it's not just angry words that we're talking about. You see, many of the strongest warning in scriptures are about the tongue. And so I want you to think about, do any of these apply to you? Lying lips, boasting, slander, gossip. The wisdom literature talks about deceitful flattery, saying things just to uh, make people like you or, or to do what you want, but not really meaning it. A famous one in Israel, grumbling discontent, because it's an expression of our lack of faith and trust in God's goodness. Obscene filth. All these different ways that we express our tongue will absolutely ruin our relationships. They steer us to be other-controlling and self-centered when Jesus calls us to be self-controlled and other-centered. Do any of those apply to you this morning? Last lesson. Let's pick up 
in verse 9. With it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I wonder how many of us have experienced this firsthand. You're participating in church on Sunday and you just sang words like, Oh God, I love you and I praise you. Then you get in your car and as you reach that stop sign at the corner intersection right outside of our church, a rude driver cuts you off and you respond to this guy. You are a jerk. You have some choice words for them. Maybe you're speaking in tongues that morning. Or after church, you get into it with a family member during lunchtime saying words that you cannot take back. Or you're hanging out with a friend after church. You start snarkily talking about, have you heard about so-and-so? And proceed to, to speak unkind things about someone who's not even there to defend themselves or explain themselves. James reminds us, you cannot curse people made in the image of God and praise the one who made them simultaneously, whose image that they bear. You're trying to produce two opposite kinds of fruit from your lips, both blessing and cursing. But you cannot. They're incompatible. And so he hammers this home with a series of rhetorical questions for the listener, the reader, to to respond to. In verses 11 and 12, can a spring of water simultaneously produce both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? And the answer to these rhetorical questions is, well, of course not. Fruit and water are merely a product of the tree or the well. So whatever's in the well, when we draw it out, that's what's really inside of us. Yes, but I say kind things and I don't just curse people or gossip or slander people all the time. There are good words that come out of my mouth. So here's James' conclusion. Look at the second half of verse 12. He talks about the pond is already salt water. If the source of the water is polluted, then you cannot get living water out of it. In other words, when there's inconsistency in how we speak, it means that it's already polluted at the source. So think of it this way. Let's say that that, uh, you have a tank of water at home, and uh, from time to time, it spews out some brackish water, just sometimes. Can you say to your friend that's visiting, well, it's mostly clean. Why don't you have a drink? No, because if there's clean water mixed with dirty water, it's already contaminated at the source. So there might be times you might say to yourself or say to someone, oh, I can't believe I just said that. That is so out of character for me. James would respond, what came out of you is what's really in you, what's really in there. It's just that your mask slipped a little bit. That in all your phoniness and pretenses and hypocrisy, you can fool a lot of people a lot of the time. You may even fool yourself most of the time. But what came out of you is not an aberration. 
That's what's really in your heart of hearts. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, you make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or you make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And then here's that principle again, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then Jesus goes on to say, a good man brings good things out of the good stored in him. An evil man brings out evil out of the evil stored in him. But I, Jesus, tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word that they've spoken. What if you and I got serious about that? The fact that we will stand before the living God and have to give an account for every careless word, every mean-spirited sarcasm, every critical comment, every put-down, every harsh word, every backstabbing piece of gossip, every time we had a filthy mouth or made subtle innuendos or self-centered boasting. What if we got serious about that? Our words matter. Back in James chapter 1, verse 26, we were instructed to keep a tight rein on our tongue. And yet here in this passage, it says that no man can tame the tongue. So what are we supposed to do? Usually pastors will give you an illustration about victory in Christ because we want to provide a positive model of how to apply God's word successfully. But I think what might be helpful for you this morning is to hear an example of my failure. So this past Monday morning, I got up and went downstairs to fix myself some breakfast. And as I was walking through the kitchen, I couldn't help but notice a feeling that the floor felt really gritty, like it was covered in sand. I thought to myself, well, that's weird. And so I reached up into the pantry and grabbed out the box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch that's on the top shelf. And I scoop out some handfuls and I'm munching it as I go up the stairs to go interrogate my kids. And so I'm asking them, well, what happened? Now, I get a variety of answers, but I zero in on the guiltiest looking party, my daughter, Violet. Violet, tell daddy the truth. What happened in the kitchen this morning? Now she looks at me for a minute and then breaks like a fragile egg and starts confessing that she woke up very early. She got up probably around uh, 6 a.m. And she decided, I, my four-year-old self, am going to make myself breakfast. And so she went over to the kitchen and uh, realizing that she can't reach up into the pantry, she pushes her little kitchen helper tower that she has uh, all the way to the pantry. She climbs up onto the top shelf and tries to reach up to grab the cereal and get it down. But it's just a little bit too high, a little bit too far out of reach. And so she ends up spilling the entire contents of the cereal onto the floor. Now, to cover up her crime, she takes all that cereal that's been on the floor and stuffs it back into the box and then leaves it on the table. She stuffs all that dirty cereal back in the box, the same cereal that I'm stuffing into my mouth at that moment as I'm interrogating her. Now to my shame, I lost my temper in that moment. And I called my daughter stupid. If you stopped to see the look on a four-year-old's face, you would know that there is life and death in the power of the tongue. I'm very blessed, though, 
that God gave me a wife who models for me the grace and truth of Jesus that's described in John chapter 1. Truth that she called me out when she heard me say such terrible words. Grace that she gave me understanding and declaring that she knows that this is not what I'm like at my best, that I'm not at my best when I'm tired. And yet, despite how understanding and empathetic she was trying to be, I recognize my sinfulness. So how do we make this right with God and with this little girl? It starts by getting honest with ourselves, acknowledging when I'm inconsistent in my words, when I'm spouting both clean words and polluted water, then I know that the source is contaminated, that I've let my tongue go unchecked, that I haven't dealt with sinfulness that it reflects from my own heart. Secondly, it requires repentance. Some of us grew up in homes where when we fight or when we fail, that we cannot talk about it with the other person. And so your strategy is, if I just ignore it long enough, then the people around me will just all pretend that we forget and forget about it. We'll just move on and yet have these deep, unhealed wounds in our heart. So what repentance looks like is I had to own my words. Honey, daddy should not have talked to you that way. It was unkind. It was wrong. It was sinful against you and against God. And it's okay that you made a mistake. I should not have criticized you for making that mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. We just need to fix our mistakes. And I want you to know that God made you wonderful, not stupid. Can you forgive me? And just like Melissa and I do with our kids, we went over, um, Violet and I go over, what does daddy need to do differently the next time? Because repentance isn't just feeling sorry. And it's, repentance isn't just saying, confessing that you did wrong. But what is the change in action that's going to happen? Third piece. Yes, but how am I supposed to change? If I'm supposed to bridle my tongue, yet no one can tame the tongue, what am I supposed to do with that? Piece number three, I had to give the reins and the rudder to Jesus. You see, I've let tiredness and stress and my hurt and my anger be lord over my words and my life over this past year in place of Jesus. I've let that go on for too long. And so, Lord, I surrender my tongue to you. Would you give me clean hands, a clean heart, and a clean mouth? And because I've struggled so much with my tongue this past year, I need to regularly practice inviting the Spirit of God to be in control and to bear his fruit of self-control in my words and in my life. And when I stumble next, not if, when I next stumble with my words, I need to continue practicing, getting honest with myself, getting repentant with the person I've hurt, and then surrendering to Jesus again. Trusting that the God of grace also is the God of transformation and freedom. Because the good news is, if Jesus genuinely died and paid for my sins, then I no longer need to be a slave to it again. Now, the danger this morning is that as we're talking about these things, you're, you're going to keep thinking about the words and the grievances 
against your spouse or your boss or your parent or someone else. Don't do that. That's not how Jesus is speaking to us this morning. He's holding up a mirror for us to see ourselves. And if you want to know what kind of people we really are instead of what we think we are and what kind of impact we have on other people, James says there's a spiritual MRI that's incredible. It weighs about two ounces. It's made of muscle and nerve fibers, and it sits in your mouth. And it is a window pointing inward to what's really going on inside of us. And so would you bow with me in a word of prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. It's so easy for us to think about all the times people have spoken ill or spoken wrongly against us. To think about what my husband says, or what my mom or dad said, or what my boss said that that hurt me or was unfair or unjust towards me. But that's not the person that you're speaking to this morning. Not that someone we wish were hearing this message this morning. This is for us today. God, we humbly ask, would you help us to come before you in a posture of humility and weakness? That in our meekness, we would bow before you and recognize that no man can tame their tongue. And because of the sinfulness and fallenness and brokenness of this world, because of the influence of of the society and the messages we receive around us, but also because of our inner sinfulness that, that we inherited from Adam and Eve, that no man is master of their tongue. But praise be to Jesus that because he came in the flesh, sinless, perfect in his tongue, dying for our sins, rising as our Savior, that his righteousness is put onto us, that you can and will cleanse us from within, that you have already done so. It is finished. And so we live not by the righteousness of our own control, but by surrendering our tongue to you, O Lord. We ask that you would forgive us for the wicked things that we have said. We ask that you would release us from the painful impact that it has produced on the direction of our own lives and especially on the lives of other people. Would you help us, O Lord, clean out all of the polluted, corrupted, contaminated water in our souls. Wash us clean and fill us again with the living water of Christ that our words might be a source of blessing and life to others. This day, would you give us new hearts again? Would you renew our hearts and our minds that our tongues might speak what is good and holy, a blessing? So we lift up our tongues and our lives and our hearts to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.